Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode three of our podcast, Sleep Talk. And we're back again, myself and Dr. Moira Jung, to talk about sleep. Hello, everyone. And the theme of this episode is going to be talking about cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. And we use the abbreviation CBT or CBTI. So if you hear us using that abbreviation, that's what we're talking about. And it's one of the common treatments for insomnia. Uh, But to start off with, what's some of the things that are topical and things you've heard about sleep over the last uh, month or so, Moira? Well, probably one of the, because it's February, one of the biggest things that's changed is uh, there's been a long break with school holidays, particularly here in Australia. We have our long break then. And the kids are back at school and people will notice that, people may notice that the primary school kids adapt fairly quickly back to the routines. And um, But the high school kids, like the teenagers, are maybe sort of sluggish and, and struggling a little bit with that. And it's probably a good idea to start talking about they're not just being lazy and not being willful. They're actually, some of them at least, may be suffering from um, a circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder known as delayed sleep phase disorder or some people call it delayed sleep phase syndrome, so DSPD or DSPS. And we'll have some information about this in our show notes. But I think it's good just to maybe I thought it would be good to talk about um, what people um, can do about that. Um, if they if they do suspect that either themselves or their teenager might have a delayed body clock, there's nothing wrong with people sleep. The people who people who have this, you know, syndrome, it's just that their body clock is very much delayed, and so they are sleeping normal amounts, and the sleep itself is normal, but it's delayed by up to sort of four hours. Often they find they can't initiate sleep before one or you know midnight at least. Often later. You see this quite commonly, I'm sure. Yeah, so when I'm seeing it in high school age kids mm. or often it's when university goes back as well in uh, younger adults, mm. uh, it's often people are, right, back to school, back to bed at 10pm now. Mm. Which is impossible been, with yeah, your body clock. Whereas they've been going to bed at 2am or 1am yeah, or 2am through the holidays yeah, and sleeping, sleeping through until you know 10am or 11am and then come first day of term, right, back to bed at 10pm and out of bed at 6.30am. And it just doesn't work because their body clocks drifted out to that later yeah. pattern. So the poor high school students, you know, put into bed at 10 o'clock, still wide awake, nowhere near like feeling sleepy. Yeah. And so it ends up on their smartphone or doing things in bed under the covers and it sets up a whole, a whole lot of dynamic between sort of parents. Uh, a lot of, and, yeah, a lot of angst in the house, a lot of students distress. As well. um, yeah. They're hard to get up in the morning. It's fine that they're stressed and anxiety increases in the whole yeah. household. Yeah. Often it's misdiagnosed as insomnia, yeah. but they might come and seek treatment thinking this, this kid, this child doesn't, this teenager doesn't sleep, yeah. they've got insomnia. Whereas we know with sort of careful examination of questioning and some sleep diaries, that they, in fact, probably can sleep when they're given the opportunity. So it's like school holidays and weekends, they can sleep and sleep long hours, like up to you know, 10 hours plus. So it's important to recognise that. And um, what, one of the ways then of trying to cope with it is literally not putting um, teenage students in bed too early. Mm. And it's a real challenge because as parents, we want to give them enough opportunity for sleep. But if we put them in bed too early, it can set up this, well, I'm in bed and I'm not sleepy anyway, and they can start mm. to get anxious about sleep itself mm, so just, so just recognizing that and letting them go to bed a bit later mm. letting them sleep as late as possible in the morning mm. and then when they're up as much light exposure as possible to really get that stimulus hey it's mm. morning time so maybe rather than necessarily you know driving kids to school actually a walk or commute yeah, actually letting them be out and- 
But that's another, I mean, it's quite a complex thing, the whole um, relationship to light yeah. because parents might have heard podcasts like this or read things in the weekend magazine and realised that morning light's good. But the morning light is, has to be at a specific time and we know that they have to make sure that it's after their body temperature minimum, which is roughly a couple of hours before their natural wake-up time. So the morning light, until they're at a proper sort of sleep, a socially acceptable sleep time, the morning light not might, 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 might not be effective. Yeah. So if you're doing those simple things of letting your teenager sleep as late as possible but it's still not fixing their sleep pattern, that's time to come and see us because it does get yeah. a bit complicated mm. and can be hard to work out where people's temperature minimums are and exactly when to give yeah. the light. And that's the sort of thing we can help people with. There is a bit more information on getting teenagers out of bed for school in a blog post that I've written on Sleep Hub and the links will be in the show notes. Mm. So what about, what is, what's another general thing that's topical at the moment, that's something you want to talk about? Yeah, Melbourne's always hot this time of the year and having hot nights, people always get, you know, we always hear in the media, you know, how are we going to sleep on a hot night and mm. how am I going to manage on a hot night? Mm. Thankfully, Melbourne at least, the hot nights don't last for too long and we no. don't get too many yep. uh, across the summer. And I think one of the key things is apart from the environmental things of trying to minimise the heat using fans or other things to, that we can do to try and reduce the temperature, uh, is not getting too caught up in that hysteria about it's a hot night, how am I going to sleep? Mm. Well, it's hard to avoid it, isn't it, when there's a bit of mass media hysteria about it? Yeah, and particularly if people already feel like they're not sleeping well, they feel like they're a bit vulnerable and if I'm not going to mm. sleep well because of the heat, it's just another reason yeah. why I'm going to yeah. have problems. It's important to encourage people to remember just to um, yeah, bring it back to today, not catastrophize to two, de- two or three days ahead. Yeah. Just. yeah. And the nature of sleep is it waxes and wanes. So even if we do have a bad night because it's particularly hot, mm. um, on other nights when it's not so hot, we'll usually make that up or um, mm. things will sort of <clears throat> swings and roundabouts. Mm. So it is important not to get carry, yeah caught, a, yeah, caught up too much in a lot of those media stories. Yeah, I think an important point about catching up on sleep, something I'd love to just talk about for a minute, is that people often think they might have missed a whole, you know, six hours or something and they've heard they catch up. They think they're going to get a six hours bonus, but the catching up on sleep is more in the quality, not the quantity. So the follow, when we talk about to people, when we say you're going to catch up on your sleep, you'll make it up. They may not make up an extra six or eight hours, but they'll make it up in the quality. Yeah. Like the percentages of the good quality sleep and the slow wave sleep will be higher and therefore they'll feel better and they'll repay their sleep debt in that way. Mm-hmm. Not So in the quality, not the quantity. Just a little point to make there on the side. Great. Thanks, Maura. Our theme for this podcast is cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia, one of the really the mainstays of treatment for uh, insomnia. Uh, and when I think about insomnia treatment, I think, of a range of different options and we can split them into medication-based treatments and then non-drug strategies. Mm. Um, in the medication-based treatments, I think my role for them, and I don't want to talk about that in much detail, is they do have a role in very short-term acute insomnia if someone's very distressed and not sleeping well for a day or two. Uh, they, I also will use them in people I see with chronic insomnia or a more persistent insomnia that's been around for at least three months or so if people are really distressed. Um, but I won't use them as the sole treatment. I'll always combine that with some non-drug therapies. And then I have some people who, despite using psychology-based or non-drug strategies, still have trouble with sleep, particularly if they've got other medical conditions, and that's where I'll sometimes use medications as well. But really the non-drug strategies are the 
cornerstone, I think, for insomnia treatment. And whilst for people who are just starting to feel like they're not sleeping well, that can be in the self-help sort of range where people are getting good quality information about sleep. Mm. Once people have had trouble with sleep for a period of time, they often do need more help than that. And that's where this psychologically based treatment, cognitive behavioural therapy comes in. So Moira, as a psychologist, tell us, what is cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia? Yeah, well, it is, it is the gold standard and it's the most um, effective form of treatment. Um, it has similar efficacy with medication, but long term, it's better and has obviously no side effects. Well, nothing that we know of. That's, so what it is, is a, it's a combination, as the word suggests, it's a combination of cognitive and behavioural techniques and therapies. So cognitive, just relating to people's thinking and behavioural things they're doing or not doing around sleep and specifically targeting insomnia. So CBT has been around for a long time, you know, many, many decades, but CBTI as a specific thing targeting insomnia, it's quite different. Um, it's a specific sort of package in its own right. And I often say to my patients it could really be called BCT because we often, we often do the behavioural side first and then the cognitive, but in general terms, obviously, we refer to it as CBTI. And the behavioural components are... Is it worth going through them in terms of what, at least what they're called? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so sleep consolidation, which is also known as bed restriction or sleep restriction, that's the one, those are the hallmarks of the behavioural side of things. And another behavioural technique called stimulus control. And, of course, there's cognitive components, um, sort of cognitive, really trying to restructure and, and help adapt people's thinking, support their thinking to be more adaptive. Um and that's a, a bit, obviously a big component of CBTI. Uh, relaxation techniques of, of a range of different sorts. So the literature tells us it doesn't really matter too much what type of relaxation technique, but um, within, within the CBTI package there needs to be some kind of focus on relaxation. And also um, last, and it's very last on purpose, is this thing that everyone knows the term but doesn't quite understand it called sleep hygiene. And sleep hygiene is something that we as health practitioners and the internet's full of. We all know it's just really advice and healthy sleep tips about sleep, arranging to do with the temperature of the room and caffeine and alcohol and the like, a whole range of list of sleep do's and don'ts. And then the things I referred to in our first podcast briefly on the side about the people get caught up in the rules of the do's and don'ts around sleep. So sleep hygiene needs to be addressed but I really do want to stress the emphasis is it's in the order of what's most effective. And the sleep hygiene on its own is is not that effective. And most people have already cut out caffeine and they understand the effects of alcohol. Um, and so, but, but having said that, anyone who's conducting CBTI really needs to be addressing at least this, the, um, you can have really wonderful cognitive and behavioural therapy, but if someone's drinking two litres of coke a day, it's not going to do, their sleep's not going to be good. So we do have to address it. Yeah, and, and I agree. So, you know, we published that article or a meta-analysis looking at CBTI uh, last year. And as part of doing our research for that, really looking at all the papers published in this area in the last 20 years, we found that sleep hygiene really by itself has pretty minimal it's effect. very limited, yeah. And for the last 10 years or so, it's really been used as the control or placebo sort of arm. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Is. And also that the research has evolved a bit and most of the studies at least in the last 10 years, have evaluated CBTI as a package. And lots of people who come to us, you know, coming to see us in our practice or in our role as professionals, might have say, yeah, I've tried one part of that and it didn't work. And, mm. um, but it's important to think of CBTI as a package of at least these five core components. 
and each one has something to add. Um, and it's that's where I think is important is trying to not just use one part of it. No, that didn't work, or another yeah, part of it, yeah, that didn't absolutely. work but yeah. actually incorporate all those components together. Mm. And to see that there is overlap, and, and I mean, it's really important. Um, interestingly, one of the research papers from last year that I'm quite fond of citing is a paper by um, Alison Harvey and her group mm-hmm. at um, um, in USA, and they looked at really questioning is it the cogn- is it the cognitive or the behavioural components of CBTI that are the most effective? And they randomised people to either CBTI or just the BT, the behavioural therapy, or just the cognitive therapy. And interestingly, and they looked at them post-treatment and then again at six-month follow-up. And funnily enough, the behavioural therapy group, or CBTI group, did really well. At 60% or more people did respond well. And at the six-month follow-up, remained doing well. They you know, maintained their benefits. Interesting that the behavioural group only did well, just as well, similar to CBTI. But at the six-month follow-up had dropped dramatically, significantly dropped down to, say, 40%. People hadn't maintained the benefits. And the cognitive group uh, on their own, they actually um, they didn't respond as well initially at the post-treatment mark, but at the six-month follow-up had gone right up to where CBTI and behavioural were at the, at the post-mark. So that shows us that the cognitive benefits, um, they're not necessarily there initially as quickly, mm-hmm. but longer term they're more sustainable. Yeah. And, they're, and they're actually the harder things to do as well. It's very hard and people need to know that if they're struggling with when they're undergoing CBTI, it's actually very hard, A, to change your behaviour. Ask anyone who's tried to quit smoking or lose a few kilos. Yeah. It's really hard to change behaviour. And so people shouldn't be surprised that they struggle with that. Yeah. And it's also really hard to change your thinking. Because your thinking's caught up in a whole lot of you know your values, your family life, and, um, so. But if people understand that you, the way you think alters the way you feel, and therefore how well you sleep or not, it's really really important. So, so I mean, I'm a great respecter of both the behavioural and the cognitive components of CBTI. Um, yeah. and so I, you, yeah. you've talked about cognitive therapy, Moira. So mm. in a bit in a bit of an abstract sort of way, mm. g- give us some concrete examples. But what's cognitive therapy? Okay, well, yeah. So cognitive therapy would be identifying people's thought processes. Um, it's a bit like what we talked about earlier, like listening to the language of you know the emotion in it. Sometimes you listen to people's um, actual beliefs, and they they'll have quite fixed beliefs about their sleep. And and there's no criticism of them. It's part of the syndrome. It's yeah. all of us. Often people introduce themselves to me at the start of a consultation, saying. I'm not a good sleeper. Yes, that's I'm a right. bad sleeper. And that's a cognitive, I would say that's a cognitive error. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't describe that to so I wouldn't say that you're, you're making an error. Yeah. But in jargon, in my notes, I might, you know, think about that's a, you know, it's, a, it's an error to their thinking that they've labelled themselves with a very fixed, firm belief that they're not a good sleeper. Mm-hmm. And sometimes by the end of the first session even, we can turn it around that they're actually quite a good sleeper, but yeah. they're a short sleeper. Mm-hmm. They don't need a lot of sleep perhaps. So perhaps they, maybe they need five or six and they've been trying to get eight and being distressed by that. Yeah. One of the um, some of the examples I can use for um, people saying I must get eight hours. If I don't, then it's a disaster. Or um, I must be asleep before midnight. If I'm not, if I know people would say quite strongly, I know if I don't sleep before midnight, then that's it. I'm a goner. The rest of the night is a write off. I won't sleep at all. Other people might say if I don't sleep within ten minutes, then I don't sleep at all the rest of the night. It seems to be all or nothing for mm-hmm. them. They say sometimes I sleep really well, but if I haven't slept well, then I know it's a write-off the rest of the night. So in that, they might not understand. On face value, they don't think that their thinking is altered. They think it's a physiological thing. What a strange thing that's happened to them. 
and I can identify that with him and say, see, you know that thought you had about that, the 10 minutes? Is there an alternative? So the cognitive therapy would be asking them to come up with an alternative way of thinking. Is it is it possible that it's because of the distress that you have around that that that's why you're not sleeping the rest of the night? Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah, it is possible. So cognitive beliefs really dictate the way people behave and that's, that's a great understanding that like CBT has been around a long time. And I can just ask people sometimes to just come up with some alternative beliefs. And even if they, if they even if they don't believe they can sleep after the ten minute thing, I could the cognitive therapy would say, could you could you possibly have this as an alternative thought that I will cope no matter what happens tonight. Even if I don't sleep well, I will cope and I'll manage. I have done before and I will again. And, and I say, yeah, yep, that's a reasonable. Sometimes I ask, is that a reasonable thing? Could you start to you know, is that something you can believe, or start to sort of alt. Most like changing the CD in the head, like put that one in instead of the one that you've been playing over and over. Like change the story, change the narrative. And although it's not narrative therapy, it's a, narrative therapy is a whole new kettle of fish. Often I do talk to people that the, the cognitions is like a story. It's a narrative in a way. So what you're telling yourself every night or every day is dictating and adding to the clinical picture. So we need to actually alter that and, and work with you around that. So the cognitive therapy is really important. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I really see the cognitive therapy as being the key often, mm-hmm. um, but I, but often the hardest piece. Mm-hmm. And That's right, really hard. Yeah, it can be hard for people. And the work, again, in our meta-analysis that we published, we showed that the results from CBTI don't all come immediately. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. also one of the struggles, is being patient ah, enough yeah. and persistent enough yeah. to continue with treatment. Yeah. Uh, and even at the end of treatment, we found that the effects were better um, three months after treatment than they were right at the end of treatment so that there's ongoing improvement right. yeah. even like, once like the, the treatment Harvey finishes. Study. Yeah, sometimes six months later the benefits are much better than they were post, post-treatment. But that's it's hard, isn't it? It's difficult to sell that to people, if you like, or to mm-hmm. say that, look, bear with me, it's going to get, it's going to get better and you yeah. will feel better. Because people, it's their money, it's their time, it's a great amount of investment yeah. in CBTI. Yeah. Because as I would see people minimum four to six times, often often longer, yeah. there are obviously models of single session CBTI and, and two and three sessions is common, four maybe. But commonly, like the literature is full of anywhere from that up to even 12 sessions. Like it's a, it's a, And that's people's time off work, it's their money, it's actually even getting in. It's a whole new, a whole new kettle of fish really access to people who have got the skills in CBTI. Yeah. Yeah, and so part of that's a real issue, you know. In we, there's talk at the last sleep meeting in Seattle in June of last year that in the US there's only around 220 certified behavioural sleep medicine providers, um, and so they're people certified in providing CBTI yeah. Yeah. for millions and millions yeah, of people in the United yeah. States with yeah. insomnia. So, in trying to disseminate that sort of treatment. You know, you and I have been involved in trying to upskill psychologists and yeah. healthcare providers. Yeah. But online is, you know, one option for that. Absolutely. So, so are there um, online options for CBTI? Yeah, I mean, like what we talked about in, the, in our first podcast of the CBTI coach, and and then and there's um, lots of programs, as in you know, Sleepio, Sleep Sleepio. Yeah. Shut Eye, Arrange, you probably know of some, some other ones Yeah, as there's well. some in development in Australia as well. There's mm. some research being done at um, Swinburne University looking at um, some on their e-health platform. Mm. Look, it's not yet available for general yeah. consumption. But, but it's coming soon. Yeah, research in, in that area. So it, it is a challenge for us as a field to do the online things better. Mm. 
some of the early research looking at those online CBT programs has shown they're better than just going off and reading a book yeah. and better than self-help, yeah. but not as good as coming to see an expert like yourself. Yeah. yeah. So it is trying to then think about it as it's not if someone does an online program and feels like, yeah, didn't quite get there with mm. that, mm. it doesn't mean there's no benefit in coming to see someone like yourself and doing Absolutely. CBT. Absolutely, yeah. It's really important for people to because often that's a um, – Something that happens quite a bit. They might have. They said, "I've done CBTI. I've done mindfulness. I've done that. Don't. I don't want to do that. It doesn't work." Yeah. So partly is actually just disseminating, or just sort of assessing really what they actually did do, because it's possible that they didn't do it properly, didn't mm-hmm. adhere to it well, or the things that were addressed in terms of say the either the cognitions or the behaviours weren't actually the things that were the problem. Yeah. You know, so that's actually so it takes a bit of trial and error sometimes. Like I talked, you know, the perpetuating problems or the, the perpetuating factors. I mean, might not have been, they might not have been identified, and so it's really, it's 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 hard. And I mean, so we're always looking at ways of of getting better access to treatment. Yeah. Um, so there's obviously individual work which I do mostly of, but it is. I would really encourage people to do more and more group work yeah. for insomnia. And as you know, we, we run a lot of groups here for mindfulness-based um, work con- combining CBTI and it's, you know, t- together the mindfulness plus CBTI is known as M- MBTI and hopefully we've got time to talk about that another time perhaps. Yeah, so we'll certainly feature that in another yeah, one of our podcast yeah, series. Yeah, it needs a whole thing in itself, I, yeah. don't, I think. So that's a nice lead-in. I had a, the opportunity to talk to Dr Kurt Gray, who's a psychiatrist from Brisbane who's got a lot of experience in running group. CBTI. Mm. In fact, you and I picked Kurt's brain when we yeah. were trying to think about absolutely. It was a great how, resource for how us. we would would think about running group therapy for CBT. Um, so I had the opportunity to talk to Kurt and here's his thoughts on group-based CBT and who's suitable for CBT and who may not be the ideal candidates. So thanks for talking to with us, Kurt. We've already talked a bit, uh, Moira and myself, about CBT and how that works and what it is. You've got a lot of experience using cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia and interested in your views on that. So f- from your point of view, who's the ideal candidate? Who do you think is going to do really well with that sort of approach? So I think um, uh, I still think of CBTI as the first line approach for for people presenting with an insomnia problem, um, especially if um, it's uh, in the absence of other comorbid identified in my practice psychiatric conditions such as obvious depression and significant anxiety and also those who aren't utilizing much in the way of substances or prescribed medications. And who do you think it's not for? So are there any times when you're thinking geez this I'm probably not going to refer this person for CBTI or I'm concerned about it? Yeah well they're the ones I think um uh, sort of the complementary or, or, you know, um, opposite of the other group uh, I was talking about. So the ones who do have um, fairly uh, severe symptomatology in the depression, anxiety spectrum and, and those who are using a lot of either prescribed medications, maybe alcohol typically, and increasingly I think younger people I'm seeing with cannabis. And you've got experience running both groups and working with people individually and you've run your Towards Better Sleep group in Brisbane over a number of years. Yeah. How do you decide who's going to go for a group and who's going to go for individualised therapy? Yeah, yeah. well, um, that's right. We've run 
our group for over 10 years now and one of the reasons that we did that was because we thought that we could treat more people cheaper uh, for their insomnia problem so I'd have to say that's still served us pretty well Um, and for most people who I consider to be suitable for CBTI I refer them to our group or at least I see if they're interested in coming to our group and if they are um, that's fantastic and our results which we've kept you know for a long time sort of point to the uh, effectiveness of the group program as being as good as individual CBTI Um, and the advantage of that is that we we speak to them fairly openly about you know there's going to be a percentage of participants who uh, don't do really well with the group and you might need some more. You might need some more, for example, cognitive therapy especially seems to be the one because not everybody gets it at the same time. Some people get it in session one just with psychoeducation. Other people, they they need a therapist for a longer period of time. Um, And... uh, you know, that's worked quite well. So over the years, probably I reckon about 80% of people will come through to the group mm-hmm. and by and large they enjoy it. And yeah. and I think that was one of the reasons why we wanted to do the group was because people um, get uh, all of those things that group therapy offers that you just cannot deliver in a single, you know, individual one-on-one mm-hmm. CBT or any type of psychotherapeutic experience. The others who who um, are unable to get to the group or who really don't want to do the group, then still approach them with an individual CBTI framework. So just draw you out a bit. So what are the benefits of a group when you're thinking about psychologically based interventions? I think there's a couple of things that, you know, you just can't get individually. And they're things like a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. and a sense of sort of common struggle that... um, uh, if you're if you're just there in the room with usually a psychologist or in my case psychiatrist or maybe a sleep physician, you're never going to hear other people's stories, other people's struggles. You're never going to hear their good ideas. Um, in the group process, you have that um, shared problem phenomenon. You uh, we use a lot of humour as well, and we you know try to engage the um, the participants in that way uh, and they realize that they're not alone they, yep. they get that very obviously um, and then there's also um, a uh, I mean obviously there's a lot of um, information provision around uh, different techniques and so on but I think the occasionally you know hearing good ideas mm-hmm. from other people and occasionally hearing not-so-good ideas from other people is really helpful. Thanks a lot, Kurt. My pleasure. So that was great to get Kurt's views on CBT and when he'd use individual versus group therapy. What about you, Moira? What do you think are the pros and cons of group versus individualised therapy for CBTI? Mm, That's a a good question because obviously both have their place Uh, and people can do 
both simultaneously as well. You know, that the model of care can be that they're actually having individual work but also involved in the group at the same time. That, that can work and it can work in terms of the funding we have here in Australia, the Medicare model. It doesn't, you're not excluded from having a rebate from the group work if you are already having individual treatment. But I guess the main pros and cons would be the sometimes um, the group's not suitable for someone who has a lot of um, psychological distress mm-hmm. um, or has a lot of um, heightened sensitivity to their, their emotional regulation and they feel they don't want to share that with other people and they, they feel like they're crying a lot and they just they might feel a bit of stigma or embarrassment around that. Um, sometimes people uh, just they just have a personal preference. I think it's really important to listen to that. They, some people just say straight away, no, 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 don't don't yeah. like don't like groups, yeah. because groups can be tricky. But the benefits of groups are so like that shared condition, the shared experience of the human condition, um, and that shared, they they can model off each other too. The, they know they're not alone. They can look at the behaviour that other people, the, the improvements they're making, or the commitment to treatment. They, it's really a fantastic little model for um sort of like a you know, um, social modelling really within the group without people just naturally without people realising it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good question and I think there's not an easy answer to that. What Do you have a particular, any views on that? Yeah, pretty similar to your mm. views. And uh, for a lot of the time, I must admit, it does come down to personal preference. Mm. I'll explain how a group runs to someone and I'll explain how individual therapy runs and yeah. people do self-select a yeah. bit. There are definitely some people, though, I'll try and... Um, I suppose, push or recommend a bit more strongly yeah. the group. Yeah. And that's even if they're a little bit cautious about participating in group therapy, but I think that social modelling and understanding mm. there's others in a similar situation yeah. would yeah. really help. And there's others I'll push a bit more to individualise therapy, yeah, like yourself, you know, high levels of distress or mm. if they've got their own personal other things that they'd like to discuss that are a little bit more private that are an important part of their insomnia, then that goes a bit better, I think, with individualised therapy. And, of course, it's important to to, um, add the actual practical components like cost and and waiting list times and things like that. So, obviously, it's actually um, quite cost-effective for both the client or patient and and us. It's just getting more people through, if you like, in terms of getting the waiting list down. If you can have six people at once joining the group um, or six or eight, ideally, rather than just trying to individually treat those people in terms of just our, our manpower or, you know, yeah. hours, hours that, that are available. Yeah. So we've talked a bit earlier about the cognitive aspects. So one of the key behavioural aspects of CBTI is sleep restriction or better matching um, the time people spend in bed to how much they're actually sleeping. Dr Tony Fernando from Auckland has recently published a study of sleep restriction delivered in general practice by GPs in the British Journal of General Practice and I had the opportunity to ask Tony about his research. So, Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So when we talk to people about sleep restriction, what, what is it and how do you explain it to people? Yes, yeah, sleep restriction is uh, one of those uh, very effective behavioural strategy we use for people who have what you call primary insomnia. So these are patients who have long-term insomnia not due to medical or psychiatric condition. So they're what you call relatively pure insomnia folks. So with sleep restriction, what we generally do is sort of train the brain again to make it a little hungry for sleep so that when you follow the schedule uh, that we will talk about later, that patients actually will have less 
fragmentation of their sleep and hopefully have more continuous and more refreshing sleep. Yeah, and it goes a bit counter to what people often do. If people aren't sleeping yeah. well, they'll often go to bed early wishing for yeah. for more sleep. So it can for be more a, sleep. Yeah, it can be a hard thing for people to follow. So, yes. Um, so what you mentioned is correct. Uh, in fact, you know, most of my patients will say, ah, oh, because they have been having poor sleep, they will go to bed earlier hoping to catch more sleep. I mean, it makes sense to a certain extent, but when people really know how the body works and how sleep works, it actually doesn't make sense. Um, so uh, it's better that actually people go to sleep at a time when they're much uh, sleepier, rather than, which is later, rather than go to bed earlier. So if you're working with someone and getting them to put in place sleep restriction, what are the sort of instructions that you would give them? Okay, so before I actually talk about instructions for patients who need who I'll prescribe sleep restriction to, what I need from patients first would be a, a rough idea of their sleeping patterns. So um, what I'll ask them to do is usually do a sleep diary for about a week or two weeks, and from the sleep diary, we can sort of calculate their actual total time spent in bed. So a common story is that the patient will go to bed at 9 p.m. and stay in bed until around 6 in the morning. So that's a total of about roughly nine hours. And uh -huh. then we also look at the sleep diary and calculate or estimate their actual time asleep. So a common story is they'll only be asleep for a total of six hours out of the nine hours in bed. So that's crucial information before we go into the recommendation of sleep restriction. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the actual instruction, um, I will actually tell tell them, okay, so looking at your sleep diary, it looks like you only sleep for six hours, and then for a total of three hours every night, you're actually awake and worrying and catastrophizing about the fact that you're not sleeping. So my proposal is for the next few weeks, usually two to four weeks, uh, I'll propose a schedule where hopefully it will make your sleep deeper and more continuous. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell patients, if I'll ask them actually, if you get six hours of relatively continuous sleep, how does that sound to you? And most patients will actually say, ah, oh, that would be fantastic. And then they'll say, all right. So if you have six hours of uh, proper sleep, and I, I will only allow you six hours in bed, hopefully you'll get those six hours of sleep. From what time to what time will you actually be in bed for? Mm -hmm. So I'll give them examples. Do you want to continue with 9, 9 p.m. until 3 a.m.? Or do you want something a little later? Or you know, choose, choose what, what six hours would you go for? And most of them will choose probably 11 to 5 or 12 to 6. And then if we agree on the hours, that sounds realistic and doable, then I'll recommend, all right, so for the next few weeks, why don't you follow the schedule where 
you're not allowed to be in bed before, let's say, 12 midnight. Let's say that's the, the time they chose. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to be in bed before that. No napping. And then at 12 midnight, that's when you go to bed. And then 6 a.m., regardless of how your sleep was that night, you have to get up. So that's the prescribed schedule, which is 12 to 6, which is 6 hours for that person. So that's the gist of the sleep restriction protocol yeah. that I generally follow in the clinic. Yeah, and then as time goes by and people feel that they're sleeping better, how do you yeah. re relax that or get people yeah. sleeping a little so longer? When it works, so first of all, it does not work 100% of the time. From our own studies, uh, roughly 70, 80%, around 70% mm -hmm. will improve. We'll say, oh, this is working. So it's not 100%. So if it's generally working, um, which is a nice scenario, then we start looking at what's ideal for that person. So patients will, I'll ask patients, is this schedule, let's say 12 to 6, how do you feel about this? Is it something that's worth continuing? Or is it something that's really hard? Or is it something that we might tighten a bit further? Mm -hmm. So I ask patients to decide. And of course, if they say, oh, this suits me well, I don't want to change it, then it's easy. Sometimes people will say, well, it's, it works. I'm, my sleep is deeper, but I actually feel sleep deprived. Like I feel like I'm, I need more sleep. That's when we would gradually adjust it. And there are different protocols. I would say, in my case, I'll keep it simple. What about adding an extra half an hour for the next couple of weeks? So from 12 to 6, we add an extra half hour. And you choose. Is it better that we do it at the front end? Let's say going to bed at 11.30 mm -hmm. or sleeping later until 6.30. And patients will know how their body clock works. Yeah. So they... so. I ask them to choose. And then after about a few weeks, we adjust again, depending on what they say. Rarely, but it happens on occasion, patients will say, oh, you know, it's working, Tony, but I think I can tighten it a bit further. So that's when we tighten it a little more, probably take away an extra half an hour in their total sleep time, probably uh, sleep total, total time in bed will be five and a half hours or something like that. The same principle applies, which is you, you negotiate with the patient what's the best for them at the end, really, what works for them. Great. Thanks very much for that explanation about uh, sleep restriction, and thanks for your help with the podcast. Oh, that's, a, that's a great interview with Tony. Um, well done. Good work. Um, having listened to that, what's, what's your take on Tony's research? Yeah, I think it's really fantastic research. We talked a little bit earlier about um, some of that sort of single component CBTI actually not being that effective. But this is a really nice demonstration of a practical single component CBTI used in a community setting in general practice, showing it actually worked pretty well. So you know, right. I really like that research, really practical, something that can be done at a community level in general practice and gets pretty good results for people. Important though to recognise it is one component of CBTI. So again, if mm. someone goes through that, feels they don't get the result they want, absolutely step it up to the next level. Yeah. then you can add in the other components of CBTI. Yeah. I'm really heartened by his research because years ago, even say maybe eight years ago, I used to say to people, 
if I only had two minutes with you, maybe it was in the era of speed dating and things like that, <laughs> you know, that our, our modern take on things, everything's speeded up. And yep. if I had two minutes with you, that I, I would have actually gone, picked out sleep restriction as well as, as, the, as the key thing. If you're going to change something, go with that. And it's so easy for GPs, pharmacists, the people who are at the coalface. Because yep. you and I are working in a sleep, Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre um, really, it's kind of like an ivory tower in a little bit, isn't it? In a sense, it's, it's we need to people on the ground before people get too extreme, before mm-hmm. it becomes too chronic, need to have these skills. Yeah. In, in addition, in addition to us having these skills. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I agree with that. That's why I really like that research. So we've had a discussion about CBTI, and it really is a very useful treatment for insomnia, and really. There's should be seen as the first line treatment. So if you're looking for more information on insomnia or managing sleep disorders, particularly with CBTI, there are resources on Sleep Hub and also some resources on the Sleep Health Foundation website. And I'll put links to both of those websites in the show notes. If you feel like you're having difficulty with sleep, it is important to talk about it with your health professional. They may refer you to a sleep clinic or refer you to other resources. There are also good online CBTI programs like Sleepio and Shut-Eye that we've discussed. Uh, And again, I'll put links in the show notes. For those of you who are in Australia, there are some CBTI providers in Australia in most of the capital cities, and I'll put links to those clinics again in the show notes. Okay, this is a section of our podcast where we talk about the clinical pearl of the month, and we've been talking about CBTI. And I'm wondering, David, what's your hot tip of the month related to CBTI? So one of my tips for CBTI is thinking of it as being those at least those five core components um, rather than just being sleep hygiene. So one of the things I'm, problems I'm commonly faced with in practice is when people come to see me, they say, yeah, I already saw a psychologist and I've done my six sessions on insomnia. I've done CBTI. I've done CBTI, mm-hmm. so not, not interested in doing that anymore. But then when I draw them out and say, look, just described to me what was done in those six sessions and essentially all that's been covered is sleep hygiene because mm-hmm. that's really what's out there and the information mm-hmm. people have, have got. So that's my tip is mm-hmm. there's more to cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia than just sleep hygiene yeah. and we as a consumer you should be looking for more than that if that's what's being delivered and as yeah. a healthcare provider we should be providing more than that and making sure we cover off all those other components, stimulus control, sleep mm-hmm. restriction, cognitive therapy, relaxation therapy, yeah. and if need be, drawing in other techniques that are often used as well. Absolutely. But in, in fairness to the general psychs, and I can speak on behalf of psychologists, it wasn't until I really sorted out myself or going to sleep conferences, reading spe- specific journals, to actually know about what what it is, like we really were taught, really in passing, that that's this is the, these are the tips to help with people sleep, and not knowing that that's so in in the, in its own right, not really the, the core or part of the core components. Obviously, it's important, but there are four other really major core components, and that's so that's I'm glad you brought that up as the the hot tip of the month because I agree with you. That's a really nice thing for people listening, whether consumer or practitioner, to 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 be aware of that. So it's time for Pick of the Month. So Moira, what's really caught your eye? What's the journal article or the research or product that's really captured your attention this month? Well, for me, it's been the um, recent clinical guidelines that were released just in October, put out by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And overdue guidelines haven't been updated since about 2008 or so on the treatment of 
circadian sleep-wake disorders. Um, and particularly we, we mentioned the, the delayed sleep phase disorder um, earlier in the podcast and a lot of other sleep-wake, um, circadian sleep-wake disorders. It's really, really important now. There's really good guidelines. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. What about you, David? What's been your pick of the month? So it's not sleep-related, but a book I've read that I really enjoyed is Eric Topol, T-O-P-O-L, his book on The Patient Will See You Now. So Eric's a cardiologist from the US, but he's very much into um, patient-centred care and precision medicine and personalised medicine. And the book's really about how smartphones and technology are empowering people to collect data about their own health and be really involved in self-management and self-managing themselves. And when I think about how that's relevant to sleep and the advent of the activity trackers and the devices mm-hmm. we're all wearing that measure sleep and get better and better as time goes by, yeah, I really do think it's very applicable to the practice of sleep medicine, um, both the using technology to get data and then that concept of really then using that technology to really personalise treatment for individuals. That's a challenge in providing healthcare because it gets away from really very guideline-based care that's, you know, one size fits all and, mm. you know, which is sometimes a bit more cost efficient. Um, and it does mean, you know, you've got to have a bit more expert-driven care that's um, helping the treatment to be personalised. And it's also a challenge for healthcare providers for us to be open to, you know, having people using that data, bringing us that data and being working as a team together to really develop treatment programs. So I found a really challenging book, but a really great book and really stimulating book as well. That's great. It's really the spirit of our times, really, isn't it, for patients to be more proactive? Yeah. Um, And I think um, even Hippocrates would have said that um, the patient is the expert anyway. Like it's really important to to be reminded of that. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for listening to this podcast and hopefully you've got some good information about cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia and how that works and some of the pros and cons of that form of treatment. Look out for our next episode, uh, episode four, which will be on sleep and sporting performance and how sleep impacts on sporting recovery and how athletes' ability to be able to perform. I get the chance to interview Ian Dunnikin of Sleep for Performance, who works with a lot of elite athletes on managing their sleep and optimising their performance. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.